You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is 1977. Jim Callahan is Prime Minister of England. You know we've been not creating sufficient wealth as fast as we've been distributing it. Jimmy Carter is the President of the United States. This inauguration ceremony marks a new beginning. Doctor Who is played by Tom Baker. I'm the Doctor. No, Doctor. I'm the Doctor, and I say that you're not fit. You may be a Doctor, but I'm the Doctor. In America, Starsky and Hutch is a popular television show. And in a northern suburb of London, something else is happening. There's a house in a terraced street in Ponder's End, North London, where the events of the past two months have baffled all who've heard about them and scared the life out of those who've been directly involved. The sequence of bizarre happenings which unfolded round these children and their mother in September have made the walls of the house rattle with the impact of flying objects and the sound of mysterious knockings. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stoll-Snow. And I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters, and today we're going to be talking with author and researcher Guy Lyon Playfair about his investigation into one of the most famous poltergeist cases, that of the infilled poltergeist. This was a lengthy investigation, one that engaged multiple researchers for more than a year. The story has spawned multiple documentaries and more than one film, the recently released Conjuring 2 is a fictionalized version of the case. And the Sky Living Channel released a film in 2015 called The Infield Haunting. But no film really sticks accurately to the source material for this case, a book titled This House is Haunted by our guest today. Mr. Playfair was quite generous with his time, and Karen and I were very forthcoming with the fact that we were both skeptical of the paranormal. But we had an enjoyable discussion, which we'll get to in a moment. Because of the amount of material we've researched and covering this topic, we need to break this episode into two parts. 
So this is part one and consists of our interview with Mr. Playfair. In our next episode, we'll go deeper into the case history. Please take a look at our show notes for this episode at monstertalk.org, where you'll find many links to additional resources, including some interesting BBC coverage of the case from when it was still taking place. Briefly, in 1977, the home of Peggy Hodgson was beset by a variety of strange noises and moving objects. She was a single mother raising four children, and the frightening events led to a call to the police. The police did report seeing furniture move, and this led to news coverage and eventually to an investigation by the Venerable Society for Psychical Research. Two investigators took the lead on the case, Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair. The haunting events, and there were many, seemed to center mostly on Janet, who was 11, and her sister Margaret, who was 14. Phenomena included items moving through the air, furniture moving, mediums reporting ghosts or spirits, and perhaps most chillingly, the phenomena called simply the voice, where Janet reportedly spoke in the voice of some disembodied entity. As with all poltergeist cases, the biggest question for skeptics is whether or not the mysterious phenomena really happened at all, and if it did, could it have been faked? But in this first portion of our coverage, we'll be talking with one of the primary investigators, Mr. Playfair. His partner on the case, Maurice, passed away in 2006, and as we'll hear in the interview, Enfield was not Mr. Playfair's first encounter with the allegedly paranormal activity. Monster Talk. Today we are talking to Guy Lyon Playfair. Guy is a paranormal researcher and the author of many books, including The Flying Cow, Twin Telepathy, The Geller Effect, which was co-written with Uri Geller, and This House is Haunted, which chronicles his 14-month investigation into the infilled poltergeist case. So our listeners may not be familiar with some of your earlier work prior to Enfield. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about how you got started and your work in Brazil? Uh, yes. Well, I was um, living in Brazil in the 1960s and um, working as a freelance um, journalist for all kinds of respectable people, including um, the American Embassy, if that's considered respectable, and also Time magazine and the um, American Brazilian Chamber of Commerce, all all very kind of uh, materialistic stuff, you know, no no poltergeists in there. And then um, during the Nixon regime, they abolished my um, department in the entire press section of the USAID mission in Rio de Janeiro was um, closed down and we were all kicked out with a very generous uh, golden handshake which kept me alive for several months and um, then I started um, doing freelance and I got a job uh, as a stringer for Time magazine which was very useful and I wrote regular articles for the um, Chamber of Commerce business magazine. So I had a really pretty uh, routine initiation. I, I didn't get onto Poltergeist until I um, I left uh, Rio and I moved to Sao Paulo because I'd heard um, about an interesting fellow called um, Ernani Gimenez Andrade who had a little uh, research group where he was studying things like Poltergeists and reincarnation cases and psychic surgeons and I thought gosh this is more exciting than hydroelectric dams and the bands of payments so I went to see him and I was so impressed that I decided to move and I I did that and stayed on for another couple of years. Well just to begin with uh, could you 
talk a little bit about the time period of the 1970s. Uh, and so the, the story of Enfield starts in council housing. So this is actually Blake's question. He wants to know what council housing is. I think in, in the States it would be called a, a Section 8. I think that's the, the similar term here. Council housing is, is, is housing that's provided for you by your local council at a very low rate. Right. And you have to be pretty well on the bottom of the heap to qualify for it. You know, you don't, you're, you're, um, you don't have a regular income. You're just living on benefits. So um, the, the, the family at Enfield was a um, single parent with four children, and they qualified for the pretty generous um, state aid and, and were given a council house, as we call it. And um, the, the, that, that's, that's the phrase that we use for houses that are, are um, owned, owned by the local council. Okay. And so each, each, it's probably not really important, but like each each city is responsible for their own, or it is federally funded or something. Uh, no, we don't. We don't have the same system here. I think it's it's different in the in the USA. Okay. Um, here you're dependent on your local council, but they they have a um, nationwide obligation to house everybody. I mean, uh, if. if um, in, in cases of desperation, you're, you're given a pretty unpleasant sort of um, hospital, um, you know, with, with a big room and a lot of beds in it. But that, that's for the very uh, desperate cases. Um, uh, no, normally, a um, family with, with, um, with no income and with children um, does get looked after by the state quite well. So that's how it works. It is, it is slightly different, and you're probably better off in England, I think, if you're, if you're at the bottom of the social heap than you, than you are. In this. I know that the story kind of starts when you meet Maurice at an SPR meeting, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit. You've been involved with the Society for Psychical Research for some time. Um, can you? I, I have always been fascinated by that. Living over here in the United States, you know, there seems to be like a huge division between people who self-identify as skeptical investigators and people who uh, are more on the believer's side of the spectrum, if, if that's a good way of describing it. And it sounds like the SPR has always been sort of a, a mixture of people of, of various uh, backgrounds. And I was wondering, what's that like? What is, what is the SPR and, and how did you get involved with the SPR and what, what are they exactly? Well, it's, it's an interesting organization. It's been going for more than 100 years. It was founded in 1882 by a bunch of very respectable um, academics and also a large number of spiritualists who didn't last very long because they didn't like the sort of uh, scientific side of things. And it's always been um, considered quite respectable in England. We've even had a former prime minister who was a member, Arthur Balfour, and we've had, I think, nine Nobel Prize winners, and we still have one. Uh, Brian Josephson is a member, and um, we, we are more or less open to anybody who, who um, wants to study so-called psychic or paranormal phenomena from a scientific point of view to, to get to the facts behind the anecdotes and the rumors. Uh, I became interested because my, my mother was a member she she was quite sort of um, familiar with, uh, especially 
precognitive dreams, which she had quite often herself, and and um, I just regarded it as something quite normal. I I, I would read the um, journal of the of the Society for Psychical Research along with my comics and my jazz magazines and so on. I just I just um, regarded it all as fact of life. <clears throat> So how did you get involved with the Enfield case specifically? Well, that was, that was a series of very strange coincidences which really were quite peculiar. Um, I'd just finished writing um, a very long book. This is after I'd returned to England from Brazil during the uh, dictatorship, which I didn't like. Um, and back in London, I was... Um, I went. I'd been a member of the SPR uh, before I came back to England. I was, I was a sort of long-distance member, and um, naturally, I started going to their lectures. And one of the first that I went to was about poltergeists. And um, at the end of the talk, a fellow sitting in the row behind me, whom I only vaguely knew by sight, just to say hello. Um, he jumped up and said he was investigating a very interesting case right now and he would like some help. And um, I tried to look the other way and I, I, I finally turned around and introduced myself and this was a fellow called Maurice Gross. Um, and I told him I was just off on holiday and um, it was still going when I got back. I'd I'd be happy to look in and sort of make a few suggestions. I really wasn't very excited. I, I wanted out. So that's how it began. And, uh, well, within a few days, I'd heard him on the radio. I'd also heard the BBC live coverage. And I thought, hell, this is one that I can't afford to, to miss. So I forgot the holiday and I stayed on, on the job for um, 14 months. Now, did, did he have that amazing mustache from the time that you met him? Um, yes, I think he did. He was quite a character. He, he also had an amazing uh, sports car, E-Type Jaguar, which I had the pleasure of driving with him at exactly double the speed limit. <laughs> 160 miles an hour. That's not bad for, for an English country road. Wow. And it, it was it was quite an experience. I actually took a photograph of the speedometer, but it was vibrating so much that it, it's out of it's it's blurred, you know. But that's something I'm not likely to forget. It was it was uh, Interesting. Yeah, that might transition you from investigating to becoming a poltergeist, right? <laughs> well, luckily, Morris was an extremely good driver, and he, he was also a very, very careful um, um, individual altogether. He, he was a professional mechanical engineer by, by his job, and, and he'd invented quite a few clever devices, including the first um, automatic newspaper dispenser in, in the world. Um, not like the ones you have in the States, you know, his, you put a coin in and you've got one copy, which uh, I think his was the, was the only one. So he, he was, um, he, he was a very, very, uh, um, well, well-trained, um, scientist, engineering, physics, and a certain amount of chemistry. And, uh, he wasn't stupid. He, he was very well educated and, um, also quite, quite a, 
philosopher. He was very, very fascinated by the mysteries of life and um, took a very practical, sensible attitude. And um, he had um, three three children and became interested in um, psychical research when when his eldest daughter was tragically killed in a road accident when she was about 19. And um, that's really what made him actively interested in um, finding out more about all this stuff. Yeah, in your book, um, you do cover the series of coincidences that he felt were um, uh, the most compelling, that maybe there was something going on related to Janet and this case. Uh, Yes, uh, that's very... uh, difficult to, to be certain about one way or the other, because it was all very subjective. I mean, he, the fact that Morris's daughter was also called Janet, and was almost exactly the same age as um, Enfield Janet, um, I don't think he he didn't go as far as um, some of these ridiculous uh, theories that have been put forward in so-called films of the book, which have been shown on TV in the last year. I don't know if that's come your way. It's a, a t- TV series called The Enfield Haunting. Right. Right. Where, where um, it didn't have very much to do with, with the facts. And an even worse film called The Conjuring, which I haven't seen, but I've heard about it. And I, I really don't have anything uh, to say about that, which is probably not libelous. So I'd better keep quiet. I'll, I'll um, have some things to say about it. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, you, thank you. I, I agree in advance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but he. Um, um, sorry. Where was I? About the the uh, events, I, I should have restated my question slightly differently. Anyway, because it's not just that this case was tied to Janet in, per se, but you also talk about things that made him feel that Janet herself was reaching out to him. That there were a, a series of coincidences that made him feel like the, the concept oh, yes. of continued consciousness was well worth investigating. Yeah, yes, that's right. That, that was true, and also I had a sort of running commentary as as they happened. I mean, he would tend to tell me about them. Uh, right off the event, and he was very meticulous about documenting everything, usually on tape, but if not, then at least um, written down in notebook. And all all sorts of odd things did happen after his daughter's death. You know, uh, clocks would stop and lights would go out, and and, um, there was an extraordinary dripping of water through the roof, although it was not raining and there was no water up there, and uh, it, it happened specifically after he'd, he'd asked, he'd sort of prayed to, to Janet to show him that she was still around, and it was in the middle of a very severe drought where it didn't rain in, in London for more than a month and, and in August, and it was everything was, all the parks were turning brown, you know. so um, that did make quite an impression on him, and... Um, I did. I counted ten of these coincidences altogether, and they're all in the in the book. And um, they they were true. I'm quite satisfied about that. And he he was rather prone to to having this sort of experience. He had quite a few uh, strange incidents while we were investigating the case. So, could you tell us about some of the phenomena that occurred in the Enfield home? Well, I think one of the most compelling was actually the first one, 
you know, as with so many other things in life, the first time is very often the best. And um, the first day that I showed up, which was less than a week after the trouble had started, um, a glass marble dropped onto the floor at my feet, and it did not bounce or roll. Or it was just as if somebody had put it there. And you can't do that. I mean, you can't fake that. You just try. You take a marble and drop it. It's going to bounce. Or at least it'll roll. It's not going to land, stay where it landed. And um, on that particular occasion, we started a tradition where anything weird happened in the house, we would immediately try to do it ourselves and see if we could repeat it. And, and um, sometimes we could, but including on that occasion, um, many occasions we couldn't. So I, I think that's a good way of sorting out the good evidence from the bad. When you first hear about the Enfield case and Maurice is asking for help, you're not coming to this cold. You've already looked into some poltergeist cases back in Brazil. And then I guess before this, there was also the Matthew Manning case. Can you talk about how Enfield compares to the the Brazilian poltergeist cases? Uh, you know? um, yeah, well, I, 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 I met Matthew Manning later and um, went to his house in, in Linton near Cambridge and saw all those signatures on the on the walls and the ceiling and so on and um, spoke to his mother and it was very interesting. Um, it, that case was not really like any other. I think uh, Matthew Manning's case is, is very, very exceptional. And also, um, <clears throat> he came from quite a prosperous family. They had a beautiful old uh, antique house, which is not at all the usual setting because poor guys seem to be very class conscious. You know, they they go after the lower <laughs> the lower classes. They tend to leave the leave the uh, aristocracy alone, as far as we know. Um, so that was unusual. But um, yes, I had done some stuff in 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 Brazil. One particularly good one uh, in a suburb of São Paulo called Ipiranga. Um, incidentally, on on the site of the battle at which Brazil won its independence from Portugal, which is still mentioned in the national anthem, Ipiranga. Um, anyway, to get back to the point, um, that was interesting because we had some incredibly loud bangs on, on the floor um, quite often, and um, I duly recorded them. And then it occurred to me to go upstairs and do some banging myself um, to see if I could find somebody who would analyze the sound on one of those oscilloscope devices and see if there was any difference. I didn't really think there would be. And I couldn't find anybody at the time to to, to do it. I didn't have the necessary equipment and so on. And, um, I couldn't just barge into the University of Sao Paulo and expect them to test a poltergeist. I think I would have been carried away. So I had to wait until I got back to England uh, 20 years later. Um, after I joined the SPR, my colleague Barry Colvin was also very interested in poltergeists. He was also a scientist who had his own laboratory, uh, chemical lab, a very, very uh, successful one. And he had all the gear, so we made a, we made a tape of all the, all the cases we could find which had poltergeists banging away on them. Um, we found quite a lot, about 15 of them altogether, 
some of them from the, from the BBC, dating back to the 1950s, and two or three that I had, and um, uh, Barry had some himself. And to cut a good long story short, they all showed the same effect. But when you make a normal rap, uh, banging on the floor with your broomstick or whatever, um, it starts at maximum amplitude and it drops down in, in a very nice even curve. And that applies whatever you do. If, if, if you hit a piano key or if you stamp on the floor or you clap your hands or you scream or whatever, it starts at uh, maximum loudness, amplitude, and it, it gradually goes down. Well, poltergeists don't do that. They get to the maximum peak amplitude in the middle. And again, you can't do that. You just try. You know, skeptics are supposed to examine things. Well, go ahead and examine that. You can't do it. Yeah. So, isn't he... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, you go, you go. Well, I was just going to say, it. I I would love to, uh, personally, it's it's the... Uh, I, I keep hoping that there will be a, a poltergeist case close enough to me that I can go help uh, investigate at some point. But in the meantime, yeah, so, I, yeah, I was curious as to, has anybody done any follow-up work on that? Or have you been able to get any more audio that's, that would kind of contribute to that? Uh, that, that? Well, I, th- I think we've done that. I, I mean, it was published in the Journal of the SPR in 2011, uh, a long paper by Barry Colvin where he... He, he shows the graphs from the oscilloscope, and um, that's that's it. Really. I mean, that's as close as you get to proof of anything nowadays. And that is in the book, in the uh, in the reissue. Yes, in the latest edition. I just managed to get one of the one one of the illustrations in, literally within days of going to press. And um, the journal of the SPR is, I think, probably still available. It might even be on the internet if you if you Google Colvin C O O V I N um, Enfield Raps. It's probably there. It was it was at one time. So that's worth looking. Yeah, that's a good example of you know constantly being told that. Um, weirdos like us, we don't have any evidence. Well, we do. We have some very good evidence. And what tends to happen is we are completely ignored. And that that um, doesn't really surprise me any longer, but it, it's, um, it, it suggests to me a certain amount of hypocrisy. I mean, it, um, skepticism, by definition, is supposed to involve examination from the Greek word skeptistein to examine. Okay, but all too many of your colleagues don't examine anything. They just debunk it all and, and mistake that for proper science, which it isn't. I, I think there are a lot of uh, what we call the armchair skeptics. That's a that's a fact. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who just well, dismiss things up front. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what my colleague Rupert Sheldrake once said that um, to become a media skeptic, all the equipment you require is an armchair. Yeah. <laughs> to some extent, that's true. But I think one of the problems is that there are a lot of conflicting stories out there about what happened. Uh, and so you referred to The Conjuring a little earlier. If I can ask you uh, about this, the, the movie The Conjuring 2 puts Ed and Lorraine Warren at the centre of the Enfield case. Do they, really, do they really have anything to do with the case? Very little. Um, 
they, they did go there. Um, at least I think they did. I, I met Ed Boren there once, and all I all I remember is him telling me that he could help me make a lot of money. And I thought, well, sod you. I mean, that's not what I'm here for. And I, I, I left, got out of the way as soon as I could. I just didn't like him. And I didn't like his attitude, and I, I just didn't want to have anything to do with him. And that was the last I saw of him. I think he spent about a day and a half, or maybe two days, in the house after after the case had more or less died down. There was nothing happening. And Morris and I would just look in a couple of times a week, just to make sure everybody was, was okay. And um, Warren was just one of numerous people who turned up generally uninvited. And um, I, I didn't think think about him anymore until, until this extraordinary film appeared and uh, woke up the, the controversy about the whole case long after it had ended. And um, I, I really didn't didn't want anything to do with, with any of it. That's That's got to be very frustrating to see every dramatization uh, seemingly minimizing your participation. Uh, yeah. No, it's not frustrating. It's some of the books. What? Hell, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I mean that the television series. I don't know if that reached the states. Was a I've seen three, it. Yeah, yeah. Three-part TV series called The Enfield Haunting, which was very well made and acted, and um, almost hundred percent nonsense. It just, things just didn't happen, but it was. Um, it sold more books than had been sold up, up to then. Wow. wow. So, yeah, well, indeed, I mean, I'm delighted. <laughs> let, them all, let them all come. I hope they're they off forever. <laughs> I'm also making money out of skeptics. Great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I have a copy, yeah. So. <laughs> but, yeah, you'll have to see that The Conjuring 2, it really presents a very different story. It does, yeah. So it's uh, it's definitely fictionalized, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I think... Uh, you know, Ed and Lorraine also took a lot of credit uh, for their work on Amityville, which took place after the Lutzes were already gone, and it just appeared. It was just like a they they had a séance on TV, and that's the scariest case they've ever been involved with. And it's just a, but they link the cases as well. Yes, in, this movie. in the movie they do. Well, yeah. surely the the um, Amityville has been proved to be a hoax, hasn't it, in court? Well, you know, to skeptic satisfaction, yes. I mean, <laughs> oh, and mine. Well, the, the, you know, the um, the the Lutzes uh, continued to maintain un- until they died that that the events were real. In fact, now their children, or at least one of them, is continuing to be involved with the promoting it as a real event. It's interesting because in that case, the some of the things that happen in the book sound like very plausible. Uh, sort of events that happen to people in reported hauntings, you know, uh, stuff that you know we would say is probably sleep paralysis, uh, but other stuff is seems completely fabricated, and that's what their lawyer at the time had said was that he had sat around with some wine, uh, making it all up, and um, I, you know, I regardless of whether that case has got any merit uh, as a as an event. Uh, the involvement of the Warrens, who seem to have hung their hats on it, uh, seems completely minimal to me. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the thing about um, that sort of story is that if you, if you study the history of poltergeist properly, um, ever since the 16th century, when, when the word 
came into the language in, in the writings of Martin Luther uh, almost exactly 500 years ago uh, now, um, you find that they fall into very recognizable categories, and, and they are pretty much um, similar. Uh, with, with, um, it, it's like a, <coughs> um, uh, a performer who's got a repertoire of about 20 tricks, and they don't have to do all of them, but they always do the same ones. So um, anybody who's at all familiar with genuine poltergeists has no trouble at all in spotting a fake, and we, we do it quite often in, in the, um, the SBR. We, we spotted one a couple of years ago without even, go, without even going to the house. Uh, well, it wasn't a fake. That was a case of a mistaken um, impression where, where a, a newly built house was creaking very loudly during hot weather, and sure enough, stopped creaking during the cold weather. So um, that was that one solved, and we had no more complaints from the owners. So um, yes, you, you do you do get um, um, a kind of um, nose for the, for the genuine case, and um, it's it's really not too difficult to spot a hoax. So the, you know that actually is interesting because we uh, when I've heard uh, poltergeist uh, hauntings described as a syndrome. Um, yes. Within, within the um, yes, <laughs> within the uh, SPR, do you uh, have um, like do you have ways of categorizing? I mean, I know within I, I see a lot of different ghost hunting groups and uh, ghost researchers providing categories, but I didn't know it. Does the SPR have an official way of uh, differentiating between, say, uh, um, a, a full body apparition or? Um, uh, a night visitation versus a poltergeist versus uh, a, a, a recent bereavement haunting, that sort of thing? Like, um, Not really, no. It tends to be more, more of an individual thing. I mean, we, we have our own ways of doing things, and the, the SBR is very definitely does not have a corporate policy. It's, it's very much left to members to do more or less what they like, provided that they are engaged in serious research. And we have a very wide range of attitudes. I mean, we have some pretty rabid skeptics, and we also have some very uh, credulous, true believers, but they, they balance themselves out quite well. And <clears throat> most of us, I like to think, are really fairly normal in the middle. <clears throat> and um, we do have some very fine researchers, indeed, who, who are um, very well organized and very sensible people. And they do very good work. I, I, I developed my own uh, list in in Brazil. I actually got it off um, off um, Anani, uh, Andrade, who I was working with. He'd, we, we'd found out that um, there, there, was, there is a limit to the number of things that a poltergeist could do. And the interesting thing that he noticed was that um, they always do them in the same order. There is a definite sequence. I mean, you start you start with normally with kind of knocking of some kind of rap raps and you move on to the movement of furniture and the, the heavy stuff turning over and then you get fires breaking out and you get pools of water liquid on the floor and a few other things about 15 20 of them all together but they always happen in the same order and why they should heavens knows but i mean that's what you have to do any kind of serious research, you have to observe what is actually happening. 
and then try and make sense of it afterwards. You don't come in with your, your own theories already formed. That's what skeptics believe as well. Uh, so with the, the end of the case, it lasted uh, over the course of a, a couple of years. Uh, so how did um, things... Not quite. quite. Oh. It was about 14 months. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so it was mm. over from 1977 through so to... There was a kind of brief encore in 1979, but it was very, very brief. And okay. uh, it, it um, doesn't really count, I think, it's just one or two minor incidents. Okay. But it, so was, yeah, were... it, was, it, was, it was more than a year, you can say that, that's true. Yeah. Okay, so how did things come to an end? Well, it was the greatest anticlimax of all time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it really was. I mean, it was a hopeless ending for a book where you expect to end with a good bang and crash, you know, and everybody had collapsed on the floor. But it wasn't like that at all. We, I had a call from a... Dutch colleague of mine, a journalist from from the Telegraph in, in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, he said that he'd done a story about a Dutch medium called Bono, who said that he'd like to come over to Enfield and stop it all. So I thought, oh yeah, well, okay, if, if, if you're paying for it all, I mean, we don't mind. Did I have it stopped? It's, it's, it's gone on quite long enough. And that's exactly what he did. He came over and um, hardly spoke at all. I don't think he spoke very much English, unusually for for a Dutchman. But he went to the house and um, I left him alone with the, with the family. And he he went up um, on his own to to the girls' bedroom and just sat there for about half an hour. And then he came down and said, "It's gone." Hmm. And he had. <laughs> So that may have been a masterpiece of suggestion. I mean, I don't know if he was a, an amateur hypnotist, but that's one way you do it. I mean, um, I, I know a little bit about hypnosis, and you can achieve incredible um, paranormal feats by, by properly directed suggestion. I mean, you can cure incurable diseases. Some well-known cases, the famous case of the... Um, fish skin disease from the 1950s, you know, which was completely incurable. It was cured by a hypnotist who didn't, didn't even know what he was doing. He thought he was doing something else. So, I mean, uh, that that was an example where, where Dono, the medium, may have been deliberately um, using positive indirect suggestion, which is always far more effective than direct suggestion. It's, it's a quite a subtle difference, but it's it's um, it, it's been uh, very well explored in some of the old books from the 19th century. They, they knew all about it, and it's not used enough today. It could, it could um, save you a fortune in pills and medicines and hospitals and things, and um, it worked. It stopped it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. 
For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think that That's that right, had yeah. an effect on on the family, on the girls, or that was an effect I on think, something else? I think that well, I think they were still at an age where they were quite suggestible, you know. And if if somebody they hadn't met before, um, I'd been given I'd given him quite a build up. I told them that Dono was very famous in the Netherlands, and he was a very good medium, and he could do all sorts of things. And and he, we were very lucky that he was coming all the way to see us and so on. I gave, I gave him a good a good kind of trail and um he he was a very pleasant young fellow, quite quite sort of um charming and, and the girls um like to be visited by young, charming men. <laughs> and, and um especially Janice and, and um he carted them up the road and bought them ice cream, which which was um, did his street credibility a lot of good, <laughs> and then then he le they left him um, they left him on his own in the bedroom, and he, as far as I know, he didn't do anything. He didn't want anybody else in the room with him. Mm -hmm. So I had a sort of suspicion of what was going on, and I just left him to it and told told the girls that he was um, probably meditating or doing some kind of. Uh, elaborate ritual or whatever, but anyway, we mustn't disturb him. And then he, he came out, looked quite normal, and had a, a cup of tea, and uh, I took him home on the train, and that was that. When you were there, you were primarily there as an investigator, not necessarily trying to clear up the case, is that right? Um, no, we, we were both. I mean, we, we, um, we uh, these SPR doesn't have any kind of official policy, but we, we do have a sort of tradition that it's um, it's our job to help the victims whenever we can, um, because nobody else will. Uh, I mean, we are the last hope for, for somebody who um, you know, has one of these things. They, they call the, uh, they generally call the police, who um, tend to be quite um, sympathetic, but they say this is really not what we're trained to do you know, we don't uh, we don't learn this at um, police college and then they tend to go to the local church of whatever religion they, they practice which tends to in England it tends to be Church of England the nearest place and they, they again do their best to help but they, they don't um, generally make any any impression on the poltergeist and um then they they try, try the local welfare service of, of the council, which um, they did at Enfield, and they, they were excellent. I mean, they they looked after them very well indeed, and they would simply go go there when there was a, an emergency and just stay, stay with the family and try to calm them down. So they did their best, but they they, they hadn't the faintest idea what to do, and uh, as far as solving it is concerned, and and um, we thought we did, and and and. Um, I used all the 
um, means that I knew to get it to stop, and they didn't work. So I mean, there's a, there's a lot. Good. Well, no, normally what you have to do is first aid is you have to separate the members of the family, get them all into different premises, and we did that, and that did work. It did stop, but as, as soon as um, as soon as they all got back together again, because we couldn't keep them separated forever. Um, but as soon as they all got back together again, the trouble started. So, so it, it's a it's a group phenomenon. And if if you have um, three children involved, you just have to find two aunts or uncles or whatever, and say, um, <laughs> so you know, you've got to take one of the one of the kids to to stop our poltergeist. And that that it, that did work. That that is what you do. And and, and of course, it, it's only temporary. So, were there other techniques that you used to try and get rid of this? Yes, um, uh, we had sort of um, what you might call prayer sessions. They weren't quite that, but but we. Um, I had a ritual that I'd learned from from um, a friend in Brazil, so based based on the spiritist approach. And Morris, who was Jewish, he he had a uh, um, very colourful Jewish ritual, which was all in Hebrew, so I couldn't understand it. And um, he 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 was very very um, um, well. He wasn't he wasn't an Orthodox Jew, but he was he was definitely a practicing one, and he was a warden of his local synagogue, so he took it very seriously. And um, I never interfered with anything that he he chose to do in, in that context. And we did um, call in quite a number of spiritualist mediums, who I must say were very effective. I mean, I don't entirely share the, their views on on uh, spiritualism. I think it's a it's a very questionable creed, but. Um, as, a, as another coincidence would have it, was a couple of my Brazilian friends turned up in London while the case was going on at a particularly sensitive point where, where Janet was having what looked very much like fits of either epilepsy or, or possession. And I, I'm sure um, just as well we didn't have Ed Warren to add to the fund because he, he would have considered it demonic possession. And anyway, they stopped it. They, they they stopped it and um, after it'd been going on for four days, and um, these two Brazilians just mumbled, mumbled away in Portuguese, which which they couldn't understand. And um, Janet went to sleep, and she stayed asleep for 14 hours, which is pretty paranormal in itself. I mean, I I, I was there when she went to sleep, and I was there when she woke up, and her mother assured me that she had not moved. So um, but that did stop all the uh, so-called possession states, which which they wouldn't have stopped if they'd been been genuine possession. They would have gone on much longer. So that that was impressive. I mean, I've always been very impressed by by spiritualists because they are they are willing to help. They're almost the only people who are. I mean, they regard it as a duty to weigh in and try and help, and they they tend to be quite practical, sensible people. So um, 
I would certainly recommend using them. Does the um, the spiritualism in Britain is it follow from the same sort of uh, Fox Sisters kind of spiritualism? Is that the same sort of? Well, not not quite. Um, the, the system that I'm most familiar with is the Brazilian um, system based on the writings of Alan Kardec, um, which is known as Spiritism. It's slightly different, and um, Kardec believed firmly in. Uh, reincarnation at a time when it wasn't very much discussed and he really started the whole um, trend towards investigating so-called past life cases he's quite important although he, he um, I think he had a lot of a lot of rather over simplifying ideas ideas um, he made a tremendous impression on um, on Brazilians, uh, I think he was more successful there than he was in France, and uh, he's still still very much remembered in in Brazil. They have um, spiritist centres in every town, almost every block, uh, which they don't have in France. And there are some in France, but not not many. But in Brazil, they're all over the place. They've got a beautiful new um, headquarters right in the middle of the of the government section of Brasilia, the capital. And um, they are very influential. They, they, they um, on the whole, have quite quite a good good influence on um, on the negative side of Brazil, which gets all the publicity. And um, Going back to the end of the Enfield's activity, since the Hodgsons have moved out, have any other families experienced anything in that house? Um, they vary. I, I've, I've got a, a mower a spy up there, um, a fellow who lives just across the road, who I've asked to let me know if anything at all interesting happens. And um, I gather there was one tenant who, who tried to claim that, uh, that the poltergeist was still there, and that didn't last very long, so I concluded that it wasn't. And then we had another couple who were indignantly... Um, Anti against the whole thing and wouldn't have anything to do with anybody, and they didn't have any trouble. So I thought that's that's probably the way to to get rid of your poltergeist is to pretend it's not there. And they didn't have any children, of course, which did help because it's very much um, it's not always children, but but it, more often than not, sort of um, teenage adolescents they tend to get the most active cases. So um, you, a lot of the evidence that still remains um, is audio recordings. I, I think I read that you had more than 200 hours of audio recorded. Yes, we, we had a tape recorder available just about the whole time, and we, we, we um, recorded a great deal of live action, you know, furniture, tables, and sofas turning over. You can hear, I've got some wonderful crashes and bangs, which I played on the radio pretty often, and... Um, they they they, um, they were absolutely genuine because they, again you can't turn over heavy sofas with one hand and um, you can't do it but well one person can't do it you have to grab it both ends we actually did that we we tried to Morris and I tried each of us tried to turn it over on our own and we just couldn't you know great wide wide sofa um, quite heavy and we also couldn't. Um, when when one of the cushions ended up on the roof of the house, we couldn't get that um, to 
uh, we got it down with some danger leaning out over the parapet, which, which um, I wouldn't like to do again. Uh, that was very odd. I mean, uh, that, that was pretty hard to explain. How the hell it got there, I don't, I don't know, but it was there. It was, it was actually seen, but seen from the street to appear from one frame to the next, as it were. Well, we did have some very odd stuff going on up up there. And Janet claiming that she'd gone through the war, which um, we spent quite a lot of time on that, and I think she really did. I, um, <laughs> you may be surprised, I really believe that. Yeah, because... Yeah. Well, what what gave it made it credible was the fact that she what really scared her was she said there was no colour, everything was white, and that is exactly what you'd expect if your normal sense perceptions had shut down. Because of course, there is no colour except what your eyes convert in, into images on your retina. The colour isn't actually on the in the sky or the grass or whatever; it's in your eyes after they've been processed, and it's different for different people. Not everybody will see the same color in the same way. So the fact that um, Janet was alarmed by the fact that she couldn't see any colors is extremely good evidence, which she couldn't possibly have known. That that is what you would expect if your optical senses have been interfered with. It's that kind of evidence that really is quite impressive, and it's also um, very unlikely to be faked. I mean, how, how would Janet know that? They don't teach that sort of thing in uh, elementary school. So, well, I do want to follow up on the audio question for you. Uh, do, mm. What's the disposition of those tapes now? Are, are they in your personal collection, or are they going to be part of the SPR library, or what happens to those? Or well, um, hopefully, yes, to, to all, all questions. It's um, um, we had we had we have a terrible problem with archiving because they keep changing everything you know one year it's dvds and then it's tapes and then it's it's this sort of ceramic stuff and it it, it means you've got to copy everything again onto some other system and then you can't find a machine to play them on it really is hard work and anyway we've now settled on um discs of some kind of not a cd because they're very fragile uh, very, very subject to scratches and um, there is some kind of ceramic disc which doesn't scratch, which uh, I don't know anything about myself, but there are people who do. Um, as it is, we still have the cassettes, and luckily they haven't started to break up, which some tapes do. And um, we've been very lucky. So all, all the tapes that I've got um, have stayed intact. And Morris's tapes are all in the archive at Cambridge University Library. So it is being pretty well preserved. Excellent. On, on the whole, and with you, you have to go through a bit of a run around to get permission to go there, because we we do have to be careful who who messes around with them. But but um, any genuine researcher can can hear them. I, I'm all for the preservation of evidence. That's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it, it, t- tapes it, it are unusually they're, they're very difficult to preserve properly because a lot of the early cassettes back in the 1960s and 70s, they had very poor um, quality oxide, which tends to fall off and uh, clog up your machine. And, and uh, luckily, you can spot the signs of it when, when your your tape feed starts to go sort of brown. And um, all you can do then is re-record the tape quickly and, and throw the other one away because it's, it's 
the oxide is literally going to fall off, and then you've lost it. But luckily, and, and none of none of my well, I haven't played all of my tapes every day, but when I have played them, they've all played okay. So I'm fortunate there. We have about two sets. Morris and I used tend to copy each other's tapes as a kind of backup. So I think we've got enough to to last um, for some time until they invent a new system of recording. I'm sure they will. (laughs) I'm sure they will. In preparing for this, uh, I also read, uh, in addition to This House is Haunted, I also read uh, Will Storr's book called Will Storr vs. the Supernatural. Oh, yeah. And he was describing um, his efforts to find a paper that was written by Anita Gregory, who I guess is also an SPR, was an SPR member. Can you talk a little bit about Anita and and her? It sounded like she took something of an adversarial role at some points during the investigation. Yeah, that was rather a sad story because Anita was an old friend of my mother's and I'd known her for a long time and um, her late late husband was a very distinguished um, astronomer. Clive Gregory was was, um, was really the one who got, who got her involved in psychical research and he was a very impressive um, character. Uh, Anita had a very hard life. She was a refugee from um, Germany, although she, she was not actually Jewish. But she she um, she, she got out of Germany uh, on her own as a young girl, and man- managed to meet meet Clive in London and marry him, and then had a couple of daughters and, and built up a career from absolutely nothing, and. Um, then Clive Gregory was suddenly uh, run over and killed outside his house in, in deep in the country where nobody ever saw a car. You know. So she, she had a very, very difficult life, and I, I felt very sorry for her. But she also had a peculiar attitude to psychical phenomena in general. She was excellent um, historian, and she wrote a marvelous book about... Um, uh, Rudy Schneider, uh, of course, being German, she could read all his original um, reports. Um, but she was very uptight when he came to witnessing it herself, and she 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 went to Enfield a couple of times and didn't see anything. Um, after, after spending maybe uh, four or five hours in the house, whereas Morris and I. Had, Spent um, well over, I think, well over a thousand. I've been there more than a hundred times, and um, she concluded that because she hadn't seen anything, then the whole the whole thing was a fake, which is rather stupid. And and, and also, we've always been very open about uh, making it clear that yes, the girls did play tricks, and we did catch them, and they've agreed that, and they've said that. At least three times on the radio, Janet said uh, they played a few tricks just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair would catch us, and they always did. And I thought, well, it's their house; they can do what they like. It, 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 it's not my, I'm not the, the their father. It's not not up to me to tell them what to do. And when when they, they they were very very bad fakers, you know. They on one occasion they hid my tape recorder. And when I came back from um, having my snack in the local pub, they they said that the ghost had hidden it 
And I thought, oh yes, and I, I found it quite soon. And they hadn't noticed that it was it was still switched on. It was recording. So they recorded their own evidence, <laughs> which is very very bad policy if you're trying to fake something. You know, make sure you turn your recorder off. <laughs> and I I just sort of laughed and said, you know, don't play around with my tape recorder. They're quite expensive, which they were then. And I didn't think about it anymore. I mean, it was you know, so it was their house, and they were. 11, 12-year-old girls, and they, and they were behaving very much as you would expect a normal one to behave. Right. So we've talked about some other cases not being genuine. Uh, to you, what makes the Enfield story genuine, and what do you say to people who believe that the whole thing was a hoax? Well, I say I was there and you weren't, were you? <laughs> that generally shuts them up. <laughs> and also, so about 30 other people were there and witnessed... Um, activity. Um, the neighbors certainly knew all about it. Um, the whole down street knew about it. And also, it, it it depends how long you spend at the house. If you just sort of drop in for half an hour and none of the furniture flies around and then you go out again and say nothing happened, um, that's fair enough. But if, if you spend a, um, several weeks there and you, you stay the night, which I did more than 20 times, slept the night in the house and you get to know the whole setup pretty well and and um i did get to know the family very well and i, I think i knew all their the sort of habits and um what, what really struck me both of us on the first first few days of the case was they were absolutely terrified they, they, they were really frightened and you can't fake that unless you're a great actress and also why would they what's the point and they were so scared that they wouldn't they wouldn't sleep with the with um, they wouldn't turn the light out. They would sleep with the light on all night. And they wouldn't go into the bathroom on their own. They would they would insist on somebody coming with them. Um, you know they, they were absolutely scared out of their wits, and they they um, they kept that up for weeks. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I ever saw the light go off in the in the bedroom. And. Um, What's what's the point of that? I mean, why fake that? Quite apart from costing quite a lot in electricity. I mean, why why bother? They just didn't want to be. They couldn't stand being in the dark. They were, they were scared. No, I I know that at one point Janet did mention that. I guess even she got used to the phenomena by the end, and, and mentioned that she was kind of bored of the fact that it was still happening. Oh, she was thoroughly fed up with it. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah. we we all were. We we. we that's why I was so glad when I, this friend of mine said he, he knew a fellow in in Holland who, who could stop it. I thought, oh, great, man, bring him in, quick. <laughs> <laughs> Did the uh, family consider moving at all, or were there any opportunities well, no, no, for that's a that? very interesting question there, um, because that is the classic way of, uh, the first thing you do to, to identify a fake is somebody who goes to the council and begs to be rehoused. And it turns out that they just don't like the house they're in, and they want to invent a ghost to get the council to give them a new one. So, so that the very first day that I went there, I said to Mrs. Hodgson, "Would you like us to ask the council to move you?" And I did that on purpose to see if she she was very keen on the idea. I would have been very suspicious, and she said, "No, no way. She said, this is my home, and I'm going to stay here." So I thought that she would never have said that if she'd had any intention of moving. 
Right. And um, in fact, when the the council did briefly rehouse them, when they were having a very difficult period, and they couldn't wait to get back again, they did, didn't like the the move at all. And they, they they had a very nice house actually. It was it was but by London standards, it was, it was top of the range. You know, it was um, very pleasant, nice neighbourhood, and. Um, very good location and right across the road from the school and um, they would have been crazy to move but no that that's a, that's the first thing you should really say if somebody is um is living on public housing ask them if you would like to see if you can get them rehoused and if they're too keen on the idea then you get suspicious when i first watched the uh, the, the the tv special uh, ghost watch I, at the time that I saw it, I wasn't familiar with the Enfield case and how much it had in common. Um, yeah, indeed. <laughs> I mean, did, did that sort of thing, um, uh, where it seems like there's like a direct parallel between the, the sort of fictionalized version and the events as described in your book, d- does that open you up to, I mean, are you able to get any money for that? Or how does... You know, I had to take them to court. Yes, I did get money out of it. Oh, you did? Okay, okay. I did not know that. So I'm not supposed to uh, go into detail. Oh, well, then we will not. <laughs> but, well, you can say that, yes, I, I did have a nice holiday on the proceeds of, um, of uh, my uh, threat for legal action, which was withdrawn the day before with an offer, which is the way these things usually happen. And uh, I was very satisfied, so I certainly won that one. Okay. I, so is, it's okay for me to continue to enjoy Ghost Watch as a piece of television and not feel like it ripped you off anymore? <laughs> um, yes, you can enjoy it, so long as you can uh, remind yourself that it's not true. Right, right, right. No, no, I, it is. I think uh, I think that one and maybe the, the Stone Tape are two of my favorite uh, sort of British ghost-related uh fictional television shows. So. Can we ask uh, what you've worked on since the Enfield case? Mostly twins, actually. I, I started studying twins um, on and off um, but later, roughly, roughly at the same time that Enfield ended. <clears throat> and um, that's a very different kind of project. I mean, it's not something you do full-time. But I have... Um, published a book about twin telepathy and um, since nobody's done it before I've got to start from scratch and I'm still working on that and um, it's going quite well but it's very slow work and it's very hard to do without financing because um, you know you just can't you've got to get large numbers together and they've all got to be fed and they've got to have train fares and they've got to be clipped after and so on it's not easy to do if you're on your own. And uh, we've already built the SPR for all the finance that uh, likely to be able to afford. And it, it's going quite well, but it, it's, um, it is hard work. And I've done a few minor cases. I don't want, I don't want any more poltergeist thanks. I mean, one big, <laughs> big one is enough. They are very exhausting and very time-consuming. And also very frustrating, because as soon as you finish, some creep comes out of the woodwork and saying it was all a fake, you know, and you think, oh, pee off, you know, I mean, why, why um, I just don't even talk to them any longer, there's no point. I mean, I'm happy to take part in a, in a serious discussion, as, as now, 
but I, I've had uh, one or two experiences on the radio where I just said, uh, I'm sorry, there's no point in going on with this conversation. Well, and you've, um, if I think this is probably a fair assessment, you'd correct me if I'm wrong, but you've, you've been uh, pretty critical of organized skepticism, at least in groups like uh, PSYCOP, which is now CSI, uh, this Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And I'll put some links to your essays, which are still online, in the show, yes, they're still there. Yeah, and um, would you? Uh, what do you think the proper role of skepticism is in investigating the paranormal? Well, I don't think anybody should investigate anything without being a genuine skeptic, because the, the whole essence of skepticism is questioning and, and examining. That's what the word means. Mm-hmm. And I checked that with a couple of Greeks I met last year, and they told me that the modern modern Greek it's it's. Um, it does have a sort of suggestion of doubt, but it's principally um, paying careful attention. There's certainly no sense of rejection without examination. And um, unfortunately, you get too many kind of people who come into the business with a sort of pre-programmed agenda. that They're either fanatical believers or they belong to some weird religious sect which... which which either prohibits or, or else encourages psychic phenomena. And uh, you have to clear your brains of all that stuff and, and just go in as as an as a impartial observer and who examines what's in front of you as carefully as you can. And I think a training as a journalist is very good for that because um, if you're working for U.S. aid, which I did for four years, uh, you are working for the government and you better get it right you know otherwise you you can in extreme cases you <laughs> you can start a war if you if you get too much wrong and anyway i i, I was made it very clear when i worked for, for for the um agency for international development that um i had to get things right and, and um if i didn't i wouldn't last very long and anyway, I lasted for four years, and um, it's a sort of habit you get you get into. You know, you two ways, two ways of doing everything, either right or wrong. And in the end, it's better for all, all concerned if you if you if you do it right. Right. Yeah, we certainly think that skeptics should have open minds. Uh, a lot of them have closed minds, but... Uh, Some of them have totally closed minds, yes. I, I won't uh, mention any names, because it's perfectly obvious what I mean, but I, I do know one or two of them quite well, including um, uh, Chris French, I've known for years, and we've had public debates at least twice, and we've gone on, gone around to the pub after each and, and enjoyed a beer together, and I'd be happy to do it again any time with him, because he does know what he's talking about, and he's exceptionally good at expressing himself very clearly. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't agree with all of his ideas. He doesn't agree with mine. But it, since we're in a free country, that's fine. And and um, he, he's he's a very good speaker. And um, and also he, he's not what I would call a hard hard case. I mean, he's not a hopeless case skeptic, which some are. Some you may know yourself, and um, one or two which I consider to be totally dishonest and um, not really worth dialogue. 
Um, I'm sure you can guess what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know Chris French. He's definitely one of the good guys. Yeah. Oh, yes, he is, certainly. And, and if you look at my um, various articles on the uh, website, which is called now, it's now called skepticalaboutskeptics.com. It used to be Skeptical Investigations, and it's now changed its name. But I think if you do a Google for Skeptical Investigations, it automatically sends you on to that one, and you can work out who, who I mean by, by that. But we'll link um, to that in the show notes as well, so um, that'll that'll be easy for people to find at monstertalk.org. Yes, the present one is run by a lady called Kathy Carroll, who I haven't actually met. Uh, Rupert Sheldray handed it over to her because he, he he couldn't manage doing it any longer, and um, she changed the name to skeptical skeptical about skeptics dot com. Um, okay. I think that's right, and it's it's quite a nice little site. It, it's mo- mostly um, what was worth preserving from the old site. I've got quite a lot of my early stuff on there, which some of it is still valid. Um, I got my six six part series on um, Psychop loses loses the Thirty Years War, which was quite fun. I enjoyed doing that, and um, that's still there. And um, quite a few miscellaneous ones and book reviews by by uh, Michael Shermer, who you may remember, uh, and and others. And um, I think I even managed to work in a tribute to James Randi somewhere. So, um, yeah, there's lots of lots of fun and games on that side. If you, <laughs> Great. If you've got a quiet, quiet, quiet weekend. And <laughs> well, up. Thank you. And we have uh, just a final question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that hmm. is, what's your favorite monster? Um, I've never really been into monsters, but as it happens, the... First, first time I was ever taken to a cinema by my mother, when I must have been about seven, it was to see Walt Disney's Fantasia, which I thought was absolutely wonderful, especially the Stravinsky Erice of Spring, where you had these terrifying dinosaurs being ex- extincted, and I never, never forgotten that, and um, um, every time I hear the Rise of Spring, which is as often as I can, because I think it's one of the greatest pieces of music ever written. Um, I get the creeps. I mean, I, I remember those Disney. They, they were pretty frightening, you know, I mean, for a six-year-old. And um, wonderful music, of course, and, and um, brilliant cartoon artwork. So I'm... Um, I can't say they're my favorite monsters, but they're, they're certainly my most memorable. It's an astonishing film. I, I, I'm, I've always been fond of the Night on Bald Mountain segment as well. That's a uh... oh yes, absolutely, and 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 the um, the abstract one, the Bach to Cartoon Fugue, that, uh, that starts off. I mean, that is really extraordinary to think that anybody today would would give the general public that kind of quality of um, abstract art. It just wouldn't happen. Um, yes, it's a great film. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I really yes, appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed this. Well, thank you indeed, and um, I hope all, all goes goes well at your end. And uh, look forward to any uh, feedback. Monster Talk.
You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. Today you heard an interview with paranormal researcher Guy Lyon Playfair in part one of our coverage of the infilled poltergeist. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions heard on this show are those of our guests or the hosts and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We'll be covering more on the history of the mysterious infill case in part two next time. If you'd like to hear more stories of the unusual that have happened to very skeptical people, you should check out Karen's new anthology titled, Would You Believe It? You can find it at Amazon.com or go to this short link, bit.ly forward slash would you believe it? That's all lowercase, bit.ly forward slash would you believe it? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. These teenage sisters believe they're haunted by a poltergeist. I was going to ask the same question as I asked earlier. How many voices are there? Six hundred. Six hundred voices. I know the joke. How uh, many really are there, Margaret? I think so far we've had ten. Three. Um. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts.